Last week we, uh, we were in Matthew chapter 8. We were looking at the centurion who was not a member of Israel, but yet had faith in Jesus. Not only to heal, but to have authority to heal uh, across distances. And we're continuing this look of faith today, a few verses later, in Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 27. This is a story about discipleship. It's bigger than Jesus calming a storm, although that is obviously the, the primary focus of the passage, and it's the crux of the, the issue, what happens in this storm. But it begins earlier with other people who are to some degree or another following Jesus and desiring to follow Jesus. And the, the question before us today is, what does it take to follow Jesus? Jesus? Are we truly willing to follow Jesus? Are we following Jesus? And foremost of this is, do we have faith to follow Jesus? Do we have faith to follow? Let's begin uh, in verse 18. And and we're going to, so what we're going to do, we are going to look at 18 through 27 this morning, but we're going to take it in chunks. We're going to look at the first part and then the middle part, and then the last part. We're going to walk our way through it. All right. So beginning in verse 18, uh, right after Jesus had had healed the centurion servant and healed his mother-in-law by touching her on the hand, and he had prior to that healed a leper, many people are coming to him. They're bringing the, the sick. They're bringing people who are paralyzed, and he is and people who are demon-possessed, and He is healing them. And we're told in verse 18, now when Jesus saw a crowd around Him, when He saw that there were a bunch of people, and it was growing, He gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. He didn't just suggest it. He didn't just ask His disciples, hey, what do you think? He gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. He's getting away from the crowd. He gave orders Then a scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, uh, other times in in other Gospels, you get the three disciples that come and say, I'll follow you, but first let me do this. Or, or, you know, this passage is repeated elsewhere. But it helps us to remember that the scribe is saying this in context of Jesus saying, Let's go to the other side of the lake. Let's leave Capernaum and go to another area that is predominantly Gentile, as a matter of fact. And so the scribe, and a scribe was a, a, a person who was involved with the religious leaders. They would uh, write things down. They would keep track of the law. They would keep track of what was written. They were the ones predominantly who would read for people. And a scribe, so somebody who is who's in the religious circles, who is uh, has an an, a, an office, as you if you will, not necessarily... Uh, you know, like a priest or a rabbi, but they're a respected religious person who has a position that is focused on the religious service. And he says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, that on its face is a good thing, right? That looks good. I'll follow you wherever you go. He obviously at some point in his heart wants to follow Jesus. And we, we sometimes forget 
that early in Jesus' ministry, the Pharisees and the scribes were actually in favor of him. They liked him. They, they were intrigued by his teaching. They would have him over for dinner and they would have him for meals and they would ask him questions and they would struggle with him. The problem grew over his ministry as he continually pointed to himself as the Messiah, as he continually pointed to himself as the Son of God, and that was a bridge too far for them. And that's when they started pushing back and fighting against him and started calling him a blasphemer. But early on, they were intrigued by him. They were open to him. They, they were, you know, he was one of them, they thought. And so the scribe is excited to walk with Jesus, to follow him wherever he goes. But what we see with Jesus is a rebuke of sorts. Jesus said to him, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests. But the Son of Man has nowhere to lay His head. And, and this is an interesting thing for Jesus to say because if we think about it in Jesus' ministry, what do we see Him do? He, he, in a minute, He's going to calm a storm. He performs great healing miracles. He has obviously within Him great power. And yet, with all His power and with all His ability, the fact that He could turn stones into bread if He wanted to, he can multiply food if he needs to. He says, you know, I have fewer creature comforts than the birds of the air or the foxes on the land. Foxes have a hole they can go to. They have a den. Birds have nests that they can rest in. They can always go back home. But I have nowhere to lay my head. And this claim, his statement, the Son of Man, to use this title for himself is to claim divinity it's for him to connect himself with the man in daniel that looked like a son of man an angelic being for jesus to use this term was understood the son of man not a son but the son it was a messianic title and he is claiming that for himself and yet he is saying look i i have come and as he says to his disciples later i've come to serve not to be served I have come, even though I have great power, I don't have a home to call my own. He, he might have been staying with Peter, but that wasn't his home. And wherever he went, he was uh, needing people to show him kindness and hospitality, or he would sleep outside. And that was what he did. That was how he lived. And, and sometimes we forget that Jesus, who had all these powers of miracles, yet he chose not to give himself a home. He chose to sometimes live with uh, difficulties and struggles and hunger. You know, there's the time when they're walking through the field and his disciples are hungry. And so they start picking the grain and eating it straight off the, the plants. Why were they doing that? Because they were hungry. They were walking with Jesus and he hadn't provided them food that day. That can happen when you're walking with Jesus. And that's what he's telling this man. He says, you know, you can be so wrapped up in what Jesus is able to do and the miracles that he's doing. And I'm sure this scribe was just blown away with Jesus' teaching. He just had the Sermon on the Mount. Now he's been healing people. It's kind of exciting to get caught up in who Jesus is and what he is doing. And yet Jesus has got some reality to bring to this man. I don't have a home. I'm just traveling around. I'm going anywhere. Does he tell the man, no, you can't follow me? No. 
But it's implied that this is a rebuke. And it's implied that this scribe does not go with Jesus. Scribes in the Gospel of Matthew are never painted in a positive light. So why should he be painted in a positive light here? Not only that, the, cheat, the, the scribe refers to Jesus as teacher. Which Jesus is. He's a teacher, yeah. But he's so much more than a teacher. And here again, it's only the people who are antagonistic to Jesus who come up and call him teacher in the Gospel of Matthew. Elsewhere, maybe his disciples call him teacher once in a while. But Matthew is very specific in the language he uses. In a little bit, his disciples, when they're scared of the storm, they're going to refer to him as Lord. And we're going to see that contrast. Had the scribe come up and said, Lord, that would have been one thing. But teacher. He is limiting Jesus' involvement in his life. He's limiting Jesus' scope of authority. Oh, you can teach me something. But Jesus wants more than us just to listen to him and be taught by him. And so this is a rebuke to this man. That Jesus, though he is great and he's healing all these people, he doesn't have a home of his own. He doesn't have any possessions that he can lay claim to except for the clothes on his back. In verse 21, another of the disciples said to him, Lord, per- permit me first to go and bury my father. Okay, so this is, this is an actual disciple. Another of the disciples, one of the disciples, said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. Again, not in the context of following Jesus always, just in the context of going across the lake. Lord, permit me to go bury my father before I continue with you. Is his father already dead? Is his father on the, uh, on the verge of dying? We don't know. But again, Jesus has a rebuke of sorts. Something that comes to us, at least, is fairly harsh. In verse 22, Jesus said to him, Follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. I don't know about you, but that's harsh. If your dad was dying died and you wanted to honor him and properly bury him and then to have Jesus say let the dead bury their own dead you follow me that's that's stiff that's tough that's not an easy word to hear and yet what is Jesus saying to this man and to the scribe prior following Jesus does not come on our terms To the scribe who got so excited about what Jesus was doing and his miracles and his teaching and his power, he has to be told, look, it's not all roses. Sometimes there's deprivation when you follow me. It's not always going to be easy. To to this disciple who's like, Lord, just permit me first. I mean, he's asking permission. Allow it. Let me go bury my father. The rebuke is that you need to put following me first. In front of your Father. In front of taking care of these earthly matters. Follow Me. And allow allow the dead to bury their own dead. We sometimes can get excited about all the good stuff that comes from following Jesus. You know, the the miracles, the teaching, the joy, the, the getting rid of sin in our lives. But... What Jesus is letting these two know, and we don't know this other disciple, maybe he ends up getting in the boat. We don't know. We just know that he was rebuked. 
Maybe he heard that and said, okay, forget my dad. You know, I've got brothers, they can bury him. I'm moving on with Jesus. But the, the truth is, is that following Jesus entails sacrifice. That, that following Jesus entails sometimes giving up things. It entails undergoing hardship. Not sacrifice in the sense that Jesus sacrificed Himself for us. But sacrifice in the sense that we give up things for Him. We may give up certain choices in life because He has called us to something different. We may sacrifice because we want to honor Him and serve Him. One, one simple sacrifice. We had the offering earlier. You know, if, if you give a tenth, if you give a tithe, that is a sacrifice. It is not a great sacrifice as giving all you have. But think of how much money you have coming in whatever your gross amount is prior to taxes, and just think about what a tenth of that is. And ask yourself, could you not do something with that tenth? You know, if you, if you made $50,000, that's $5,000. That's, that's not chump change right there, is there? If you make $30,000, that's $3,000. That's bills for a month for some of us. That could be a trip. You could, you could go to Europe on that. You could take a cruise. You might have friends and family who do those very things and you feel left out because you can't quite do all the stuff everybody else does. That's, that's called a sacrifice. That's called hardship. That's called doing without because of your worship and your service to God. Following Jesus entails sacrifice. It entails giving up things of this world because we believe in Jesus and He has called us to serve Him. Sometimes it means not getting revenge. It means not getting back at a person because He has told us to love our enemies and to bless those that curse us. And so following Jesus entails sacrifice. Not getting that rejoinder that we want to say. It can mean hardship. It can mean going without. It can mean giving up the things that we were hoping to use because somebody else needs it more. Following Jesus is not easy. It is not on our terms. It is on His terms. We have to follow where He's leaving. You, you, you can't... When you follow, and, and that, that word, and even the word disciple, the word disciple means to, to learn from somebody. And to follow means to walk the path that somebody else is walking. You can't tell him where to go. You can only go where he's already leading you when you follow him. And so following Jesus entails the sacrifice of your own will, your own desires, as it comes to what path you're going to walk. When you follow Jesus, that means you say, okay, I give up. This is an act of, of self-will. This is an act of choice. I give up all the other choices. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to follow His will. And I'm going to make choices that I feel are within His will. That's a sacrifice. Following Jesus entails sacrifice. At this moment, the sacrifice is getting into a boat and going across the sea. Leaving the crowd. Leaving the, the apparent uh, success of ministry. And going to another place. 
Following Jesus, the sacrifice for the scribe might be giving up his position. It might be giving up people's good opinion of him if he were to follow Jesus. And then the rest of the Pharisees turn against Jesus and where is he going to land? For this one disciple, following Jesus is the sacrifice of not being there to bury your dad. But you have been called to something else. And you need to press forward for that. There have been people who, in following God, have been missionaries in other lands and have not been home to bury their, their families. We, we are so spoiled today with the idea that we can fly home within a, you know, a, a day if you really needed to. Back in the 1800s when people were traveling to China to be missionaries, they were packing their belongings in their coffin. Because there was a good chance they weren't ever going to come home and see their family again. But they followed Jesus. And they sacrificed it to follow Him. Every single one of us, as we follow Him, we will experience, it will be different for each of us, but we will experience sacrifice. And that's what's happening here. And we see a good answer, a good response to Jesus' order to depart to the other side in verse 23. When He got into the boat, His disciples followed Him. He got into the boat, His disciples followed Him. Now, mark this. This isn't the twelve. The twelve haven't been selected yet in Matthew. The way Luke orders and arranges things, you could say that the twelve have been selected by this time. But in Matthew, he hasn't selected the twelve. He hasn't called Matthew yet. Matthew getting called happens in chapter 9. So this is just the disciples we've already seen. Peter, Andrew, James, John, maybe a few others. Whether they all get into one boat or there are several boats there, we don't know. But there's at least this one boat that we know of. And we're told in verse 24 as the disciples get in the boat with Him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea so that the boat was being covered with the waves. It was, it's, it's the idea of being covered up. It was completely swamped. It, it, it's to, the idea of you, know, you want to completely conceal yourself. That's this word. The boat was being covered with the waves But Jesus Himself was asleep. Whether He was so exhausted from the crowd or whether He just really wanted to take a nap or whether it was just the the waves just lulled Him to sleep. It's, It's this juxtaposition of His peace that He is asleep. That He can sleep through the storm and yet the boat is being swamped. It is being covered. It is being destroyed by uh, the waves. And so in verse 25, they came to Him. The disciples, they came to Him and they said, uh, they woke Him saying, Save us, Lord! We are perishing! And, and, and at least four of these men are, are fishermen. And they've lived on this lake their entire lives. They, they work on it. It is their sustenance, their income. They are used to this lake. They know about the storm. They know how to deal with the storms. They are professionals. And it's something else when the professionals go to the guy who worked as a day laborer, maybe a carpenter. Now he's a traveling itinerant pastor, preacher. And they wake him up. They say, save us. What they are in is beyond them. What they are in is, is beyond their abilities. It is beyond their skill, their knowledge. They are terrified. 
The, the word perishing, it means to destroy utterly. It's where we get the word Apollyon from, the apocalypse, you know, the, 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 the very, not apocalypse, but Apollyon, the destroyer. They are going to be completely and totally destroyed. It's the idea that death is certain. They are perishing. And what do they do? They go to Jesus. Yeah, I gotta, we, we've got to stop and at least acknowledge these disciples wake Jesus up. They go to Jesus with their trouble. They go to Jesus with their suffering. They go to Jesus with their fear. And they, they, they recognize His sovereignty. They recognize in Him that He can do something they can't. He can get them out of this. He can save them. They can't save themselves. He can save them. Let's at least honor them for the fact that they put their trust and their faith in Jesus. And they say, save us, Lord. We are perishing. And, and it's, it's perfectly natural for them to be scared in the storm. To be frightened in the storm. And, and as we are following Jesus, quite honestly, we can be afraid on the journey with Jesus. There are things that will happen in our lives that will rise up like a storm on the sea and terrify us. And, and we are right to go to Jesus and to say, save us, Lord. Save us. We can be afraid. And that's what they are going through. But I love the fact, and I think we too quickly skip over the fact because of Jesus' statement to them in the very next verse. They went to Jesus. They, they called Him Lord. They asked Him to save them. And they told Him what their struggle was, what their problem was. Save us, we're perishing. These are all good things. To, to, to go to the Lord with our fear, to go to the Lord with our struggles and our troubles, and to ask His intercession. They acknowledge His sovereignty in their lives and over that situation. But of course, we have seen where... Uh, right after they say this to him, Jesus in verse 26, he said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became calm. And the men were amazed and said, What kind of a man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? What, what manner of man? What, he is obviously more than a man. Who is this? What kind of a man is this that even the winds and the sea obey Him? And, and, and so what we're moving from is they have seen Him heal people. They saw the leper healed. They heard about probably after the fact that the centurion's servant had actually been healed at the time that Jesus said it because that's Matthew's note there. They saw Peter's mother-in-law healed. They've seen many people coming to Jesus and being healed. They've heard His teaching. They know that He is Lord. And yet there's this new question. What kind of a man is this? Even the wind and the waves obey Him. And see, the thing is, is that I don't think Jesus calmed the storm to save the disciples. Maybe he was taking kindness on them. But the point of this passage is not that Jesus will calm the storms in your life. We sometimes like to allegorize it that way for ourselves. 
That is not what Matthew is trying to communicate. That was not why Jesus calmed the storm. That's not what he's trying to communicate either. What Jesus is doing is he is telling the disciples through this action, just like healings, to to heal a paralytic, to heal a demon-possessed person, to heal the leper, to give people sight. These were all signs that pointed to Jesus' power and therefore the truth of his teaching. His miracles were designed and given to give uh, support to his teaching. His teaching is what mattered. Healing people wasn't really the important thing. People came and left. They got healing and they left. But the healing was about Jesus' teaching. His teaching is what mattered. And the same is true here. Jesus has stilled the storm. He has commanded the, 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 the winds and the sea and they become perfectly calm. But His purpose isn't to give them a safe journey the rest of the way. His purpose in doing this is to answer the question that the disciples ask. What kind of a man is this? And we see the answer uh, that Jesus is giving them in Psalm 107, verses uh, 23 through 30. I didn't give myself a little tag thing. I should have. All right, there we are. This psalm, we actually have a hymn that comes out of this psalm. The psalm says, those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, that's the disciples, that's the fishermen, they have seen the works of the Lord, they have seen the works of Yahweh, and His wonders in the deep. For He spoke and raised up a stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens, they went down to the depths, their soul melted away in their misery. We're talking about the people on the ship. The waves took them up to heaven. The waves took them down to the depths. Their soul melted away in their misery. I once got to ride on a ferry trip north of Scotland to the Orkney Islands. I thought it was great. I enjoyed it. One of the teachers that took us, because I was in seventh grade at the time, she did not enjoy the ride, and she especially didn't enjoy it, the fact that I was enjoying going as far each direction as I could, not holding on to anything, and standing there as we were battered by the waves, and she started getting green, and I started enjoying that even more until I got in much trouble. And that was just a rough sea. That wasn't waves going up and waves going down. Their soul melted away in their misery. There is a special misery of being at sea in the middle of a storm because there's nowhere to go. You're stuck. You must hold on through it. Verse 27 continues, They reeled and staggered like a drunken man and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to Yahweh in their trouble, and He brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be still, so that the waves of the sea were hushed. Notice the language, hushed. Be quiet. They were hushed. Then they were glad because they were quiet. So He guided them to their desired haven. Jesus by calming the waves and the wind, is claiming, I am God. What manner of man, what kind of a man is He? He is God. He is 
The second person in the flesh. He is the Word of God come to us incarnate. He is God. And what we see in this, as he, as in this psalm, as he, he, you know, he spoke and the waves began, He speaks and the waves stop. So it's not just that He can stop the messes in our lives. Sometimes He is the agent of them. He starts the storm. And He stops the storm. What we can learn from this other than the fact of something that we've already learned that the disciples were still learning at this time, but we know Jesus is God. That's what His claim is. But also what we can see beyond that is that God is sovereign over the troubles of life. He is not just sovereign over ending them. He is not just the one who's going to solve our problems. Sometimes He starts the storm. I don't think it's any coincidence that they got into a boat and they got out into the sea and then a storm arose and the boat was being covered with the waves, but Jesus Himself was asleep. I think Jesus orchestrated the whole thing for His purpose, for His disciples' edification, and for His own glory. And sometimes that happens in our lives as well. And we think, where is God? What is He doing? And maybe He is the one that's behind the whole thing in the first place. When we cry out, why is God doing this? Or why is, this, why is He allowing this to happen? Where is He in my life as I am going through this trouble? It might be that He is so close to us. He is so intimately involved in it that He got it all started in the first place for His glory and for His purposes that we might grow in Him. Now, God does not tempt anyone to sin and He cannot be tempted to sin. So we're not talking about sin. We're not talking about temptation. That is something we do. And not everything that happens to us is necessarily from God. But we can acknowledge that God is sovereign over all the troubles of life. If we go back to Job, God did not decide to afflict Job. God allowed Satan to afflict Job. God had enough faith and trust in Job. God knew Job well enough to be confident in Job. Maybe we're not so sure we want God to have that kind of confidence in us, right? But God is sovereign over the troubles of life and in a similar way, because Jesus is God, He is telling His disciples that He is sovereign over these things. And that gets us to the question that Jesus asked His disciples. Why are you afraid? Obviously they're afraid because of the storm. Obviously they're afraid because they think they're perishing. They have every right to be afraid of the storm, and yet Jesus says, why are you afraid? And then He even identifies them. You men of little faith. You men of teeny tiny faith. Not, not big enough to be a mustard seed faith. Because we has told us if we had faith the size of a mustard seed, move a mountain. So you have so little faith, as, as Mark put it, you men of no faith. Why are you afraid? And, and Remember the the disciples, they they did a good thing. They came to Jesus and they said, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. See, his his struggle isn't with the fact that it's a scary situation. That's 
fine. And, and, and they're not so afraid that they, they don't think they're going to get out of it. They just think we need to get Jesus involved. And the reason why Jesus is asking them, why are you afraid, is because He was in the boat. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He was in the boat. It didn't matter how high the boat went in the sea. It didn't matter how low the boat went in the sea. Jesus went up and down with them. And as long as Jesus was there with them, there was nothing for them to be afraid of. They were afraid, and they were rightly afraid, but there was no reason for them to be afraid because Jesus was with them. And that's why He says, why are you afraid? He's trying to prove to them and show them He has control over these things. Just as the centurion had faith to believe that Jesus didn't have to go and touch His servant, He could just say the word and it would happen because He had authority. Jesus is saying, I've got authority over the wind and the waves. That's what the disciples say. What kind of man is this? Even the wind and the sea obey Him. They obey and that's, what, that's why Jesus is saying, why are you afraid? Oh, men of little faith. They didn't have enough faith to trust that God had gotten them into that storm and that He was going to see them through that storm and He was going to take them to the other side. They thought they had to wake Him up. They thought they had to get His attention. Have you ever felt like that? That, that you were going through something and God obviously was too busy somewhere else and you needed His attention? Focus on me, God. I need your help. Where are you? Why aren't you doing this for me? Have you ever felt like that? He just cares about everybody else, but he doesn't seem to care about me. That's where the disciples were, and that's why Jesus rebukes them with, why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? Obviously because of the storm. Come on, Jesus. But No, I'm in the boat with you. I can take a nap. You know, at some point they needed to cease striving to cease working and to rest in Jesus. Whether the boat broke up in the waves and they all drowned, or whether it got to the end safely, they were with Jesus. It didn't matter. And, and that's the truth that we all need to understand, is that when you are with Jesus, you do not need to be saved. If you have already been saved, and you are walking with Jesus then when you are with Jesus, you do not need to be saved. You don't need to be. You're already saved. You're already safe. That was the last point. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, I don't know. Mine, mine's not working. Mine back there is not working. When you're with Jesus, you don't need to be saved. If you're going through a storm, He's with you. You don't need to worry about, is he ignoring me? No, we, we need to see, am I resting in him? But we don't need to be saved. What we need to do is to trust in him, to, to walk the path as we follow. When he tells his disciples, look, follow me, it's going to entail some sacrifice. And, and there are going to be things in life walking with Jesus that you are genuinely going to be afraid about. The fact that we feel the fear is not the issue. The fact that we even go to Jesus is not the issue. The issue with them is that because He is sovereign over the troubles of life, over all the, the difficulties, 
that we face. Because He is sovereign over it, we don't have to ask Him especially, save us in this. He's walking with us. He is there. You don't need to be saved. He's he's going through the waves with you. He's going through the highs with you. He's going through the lows with you. The the real question is, is, am I resting in Him? Am I trusting in Him? Am I seeking and and looking for what, what am I called to do because I'm here with God in this instance? So often we can be combative or aggressive. We want to solve something. We want to fix it. But maybe... Maybe the trouble that we are going through is God's purpose so that He might proclaim something about Himself in our life to us and to those around us. I think one of the things that this touches on, something that I've been wrestling with the last couple of weeks just in in a few thoughts and a few passages, worry. Jesus, uh, later on, he, he tells his disciples, uh, don't worry. Well, actually, in Matthew, he did it in the, the Sermon on the Mount. But don't worry about what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to wear for clothing. For life is more than these things. For your Heavenly Father knows that you have need of these things. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And we've, we can focus on the seek first, We make songs about seek first. We don't make a whole lot of songs about do not worry. Who by worrying can add a single hour to their life? Do not worry. The disciples in that storm, they were worried. They were worried. They were about to die. Don't worry. You may worry at times that you're about to die. Don't worry. Easier said than done, I'll grant you. But if you're walking with Jesus, you don't have anything to worry about. Because if you'll die, you'll be with the Lord. If you don't die, you'll still be here to serve. Whatever happens, He is walking with you. He is leading you if you're following Him. So no matter how scary it is, no matter how frightening it is, no matter how... uh, unclear you are as to what the end result will be, you're not perishing. Death is not certain. Do not worry. Trust. Believe. Have faith to follow Him. Don't worry. I think that's why Jesus said, why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? And and that word afraid, it's not... uh, it's not the normal word we use, phobos, to be afraid of something, to have fear. It's not the healthy uh, fear and reverence to the Lord. The word used here, it's an excessive fear. It's a dread that you're going to lose something. Maybe your life. Maybe your home. Maybe your job and your income. Maybe your family. There's a lot of things we can be afraid of losing. But if you have Jesus, you cannot lose. So why are you afraid? Why are you afraid? He is with you. So have faith and follow. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, Lord, it is easy in the comfort of this room to talk about following You. It is easy to talk about not worrying. It is easy to talk about Your sovereignty and to have faith. Lord, in our lives, that is where the rubber meets the road. In our lives, when we are going through the struggles and we are going through troubles, that is the time when it is hard to remember that You are with us. So we pray, Lord, as we go through troubles in our lives, as we undergo physical trials, health issues, jobs, money, and bills piling up against us, Lord, help us not to worry. Help us not to be afraid of the outcomes, but to trust that You are with us. To know that You are with us, Lord. Help us not to doubt Your love or presence, but to recognize I'm following Jesus. He is right here in front of me. And as we go through our troubles and our trials, Lord, may we instead seek to see how are You leading us through this? Maybe the disciples all needed to just take a nap because that's what Jesus was doing. They would have woken up on the other shore, safe and sound. Lord, help us to follow Jesus, to do what He is doing in life. Help us to rest in the fact that You are sovereign over it all. Give us faith to follow. We pray, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.